Welcome to Rationalist, everybody. I'm your co-host, Morgan Weck, and I'm here with the connected Eddie Matthews. Eddie, who are you bringing on the pod today? Dr. Allison Edwards, um, who I got to know during my uh, PhD at Swansea University. We're both Swansea University alums. And um, yeah, when I met Allison, she was just, uh, I knew her as the lady next to the scanner who would just be Xeroxing and scanning like obscure Russian periodicals from the 90s. We became best buds. Allison, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. And now you've gone on to bigger and better things. You're a teaching fellow at Warwick University uh, in how, how, close to Birmingham. Pretty close, right? It's about Anywhere? 40 minutes from where I live, but that's close enough, I think. I think that's a good space to have between where you work and where you live. Okay. Nice. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about your research background? We have brought you on as our uh, Russian history expert uh, for a reason. But uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about uh, your dissertation and your research. Yeah, so my most recent research, recent research is about militarism in post-Soviet Russia. I'm not quite as um, in the know about machine guns and tanks, but I'm more interested in uh, how people are militarized, mobilized through discourses, through prominent discourses um, in everyday society. And I think uh, it's, it's, I couldn't really tell you how I got into that as a topic itself. Um, I think that it really began during my bachelor's and master's when I was interested in the Cold War, which of course is also timely. Um, interested in the Cold War and I was interested in how people responded to nu like nuclear warfare and discussions around nuclear warfare and how people were then I guess um, conditioned uh, around maybe discourses around nu nuclearity um, you know kids were being taught what to do if a, a nuclear raid was to happen and how do they respond to that how do they I don't I was I've always been interested more in how people have been shaped by warfare and these events and by the military, how they've been mobilized by these discourses around uh, the military. Um, I'm particularly interested in historical myth-making. So how history, especially uh, military history, history of war has been utilized by political elites in order to mobilize society, almost as if they're kind of continuing old wars or continuing the victory of those old wars. Um, I couldn't really tell you how I got there, though, and how I really became interested in Russia, how I really became interested in uh, militarization in general. It's just something that kind of happened, I guess. I went on a trip to, to Germany um, and I didn't know anything about the Cold War at this point. And it was during that trip that I started to learn about it and then kind of made it my aim to learn more and more about it. But um, yeah, so I, I sit... Um, at the moment, I focus more on um, Yeltsin's Russia. Um, however, there are a lot of links with what we can see in contemporary Russia, especially with uh, historical myth-making um, and uh, a lot of what is on what we see in place in Putin's Russia, especially around commemoration and historical myth-making is something that isn't something that Yeltsin created. It's from even before Yeltsin, but Yeltsin created it in the post Soviet Russian context, you know, he took it beyond the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that's, um, that's something I'm interested in something I've explored. And I think a lot of the events over the last, especially the last couple of days, especially some of the speeches that Putin gave, uh, kind of tap into um, this historical myth making that we saw in, in Yeltsin's time. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's really where I that's what I do. Yes, well, it's very timely. Now we're happy to have yeah. you. Thanks so much for joining. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, we should say that we're recording this at, uh, on uh, Saturday, February 26th, because um, we'll be talking about some kind of timely updates and that information might change depending on when you listeners are listening to this. But um, yeah, Alison, just based on that description of your research that you just um, relayed to us, um, so much more focusing on kind of the communication and the language and how that's shaping kind of the culture than anything military strategy or equipment, you know, technology related. Um, 
can you just give us the the basics of uh, who is who is uh, Boris Yeltsin? Uh, what was his role in kind of shaping Russia? Uh, you know, just kind of the layperson's uh, you know pretend don't know much about uh, Russia or kind of this transition from the Cold War into into modern Russia from the Soviet Union. Can you just give us kind of a rundown of how the 90s looked and what uh, role Yeltsin played? And Yeah, I mean, I can definitely give you a lowdown. It's such a huge era that even my research is only kind of tapping the surface. So there's definitely other people who I can um, kind of amplify their voices as I speak today about this topic, because I'm, as I said, I'm only tapping. Um, I haven't even scratched the surface, I would definitely say. Um, so Boris Yeltsin was actually the first president of the Russian Federation, as we now know it. Um, he was someone who had worked his way up the ranks of the Communist Party. Um, he famously denounced um, Gorbachev in the late 1980s, um, basically criticizing uh, the slow pace of his democratization efforts. And he was someone that was very much marginalized then um, in that process. However, in the, the 1991 um, Soviet coup d'etat, the failed Soviet coup d'etat, where communist hardliners tried to kind of revive the communist nation prior to, to Gorbachev. So Gorbachev, um, who came into power in 1985, he brought with him ideas to change the Soviet Union, bring around, um, um, communism with a human face. Uh, so Perestroika, Glasnost, uh, Glasnost, where he wanted to kind of lift the veil on secrecy to create, I guess, a, a more open relationship between politics and um, the people. Oh gosh, I feel like this is such a long history. Um, we could be here forever. But um, what, what Yeltsin did, even though he had been marginalized, um, after his criticism of Gorbachev in the late 1980s, upon the 1991 Soviet coup d'etat, where communist hardliners tried to kind of revive the traditional communist state, Yeltsin stood up for Gorbachev, uh, famously on top of a tank, actually. Um, so he, he literally st stood up for him. Yeah, on top of a tank as well. So it was during this coup d'etat that he stood up for him. Um, and, you know, condemned the, the Soviet coup d'etat that was taking place at that time. And it was really at that moment that people could really consider him as what's next for Russia, who is next for Russia. It's this person, it's Boris Yeltsin. Um, and soon after, Boris Yeltsin was voted in as the first president of, uh, of Russia. Um, you know, he faced, especially in the... I mean, he faced, I guess, a lot of challenges during his um, period as president. First of all, politically, in the sense that he, you know, he was still facing um, a lot of people who were still pro-communist. So we have the 1993 constitutional crisis, for example. Um, we also see that he, you know, someone to follow on that is Jeffrey Horn, by the way, um, from the London School of Economics, who is working on um, the early years of the Yeltsin, um, Yeltsin presidency. But also, um, you know, there was economic chaos at the time because of the move away from the communist economic system, um, where we see price liberalization, raising prices on everyday goods, bread, milk, um, people are queuing on the streets because they don't have some of these, um, they don't have some of these basic necessities. Um, and really, actually, this is quite, interesting since we've, I've already kind of raised memory making or history myth making in the sense that Putin actually uses the chaos of the wild 90s, as it's called the wild 90s, um, of the Yeltsin period to create distance and say, well, look, we're living in better times now. Um, and again, I will, I'll have to, you, you, you should have a look at the work of uh, Roberta Rabia, who is working on this um, on Putin's use of that chaotic memory in order to try and legitimize his current position. Yeah, I had a student who was Russian probably a couple semesters ago, and I tried to like be like, well, Putin, maniac, right? And she, she kind of pushed back. She's like, woof, you don't know what it was like back in the 90s. I was like, okay. You know, it was a really difficult time for people. So I guess it's not, it's not a total myth. 
in this, you know, I talk about historical myth making, I guess it's more about how Putin's using memory of the past in order to legitimize his future. It was a bad time, but, um, you know, uh, my landlady in Russia, one of the first conversations we had when I, when I went out to start my field trip or field work, I asked her about the 1990s, because I think, I think she's in her 60s, I've never asked her. And one of the things she said to me was, it was a tough time, but it's the freest we've ever been. And I wonder how much um, the, that positive of being free outweighs the negatives. I can only say that there's probably only a few people that have that feeling. A lot of people would, oh, I don't want to say it. Um, I guess listening to what your friend has said, you know, saying you don't really know what the 90s is like, um, there's, it's probably very divisive in whether people would consider it worth the, not having the freedom to have also the amenities. So I guess, yeah, um, I can imagine that's probably more divisive. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. My, my dissertation work focuses on the trade-off between freedoms and securities in sub-Saharan Africa and the way people perceive democracy as sometimes a lef- less efficacious form of governance than certain forms of authoritarianism. I know you have the classic retort that at least under Mussolini, the trains ran on time and things like that. There's these perceptions that stretch beyond the Russian context, um, but are, I think, extremely salient in that case. So maybe you can give us a sense of how we got from Yeltsin to Putin and what has changed since the 90s um, that's kind of led us to today. Not a, not a sore, short question, but uh, maybe you can just give us a, a brief no, bullet point overview. Yeah. I know you're new to this podcast too, Alison. So usually we go four and a half hours. So I hope that you're open to staying up late. <laughs> no, uh, no. I, um, I hope I can give you a brief answer. I feel like the last answer, maybe I, I, that wasn't brief at all. But no, I, that was totally fine. Uh, sure it was a could, similar yeah. length. It was a good not. length. I'm trying to make sure I can give both sides of the arguments because I get, I guess I get what you mean, Morgan. I just want to finish off on that point of the last question in the sense that I didn't live through it. So I don't know what would I have myself, would I have preferred the freedom or what I've preferred having food and uh, resources. I don't know. I can never really talk about that experience, but I guess my landlady compared to what um, Eddie's friend has said kind of shows that divisiveness. Um, in terms of how we got from Yeltsin to Putin, this is actually, you know, I, I didn't envisage writing about this as such when, it, when I started my thesis. And it was something that came out of it after reading Yeltsin's Midnight Diaries. Um, so a lot of, you know, Yeltsin is a, a civilian president, right, without a military background. Okay. However, he was socialized in a militarized Soviet Union. Okay. He was brought up, he was socialized. And one of the sections of my thesis actually came for me to discuss about Yeltsin himself as a mechanism of militarization. And one of these reasons is because, you know, he chose Vladimir Putin to be his successor. So I think the first part here is that we look at why did, why was Putin chosen out of all the other people? You have Pavel Grachev, for example, um, who was um, a, a, a military, uh, he was a defense minister um, at some point in the Yeltsin presidency. Um, And the reason is, and and Yeltsin talks about this, it's actually a very salient point in his Midnight Diaries, is that he feels like that Russia needs to be led by a general. And he said, you know, he then met someone, a general who was not chaotic, a a general who was not corrupt. um, And he said, this general was Vladimir Putin. And, you know, he lists it in, in his Midnight Diaries. I remember reading that and thinking, oh, my gosh, I need to talk about this. I need to write about this. Um, so first of all, how do we get from Yeltsin to Putin? Because Yeltsin put him there. That's the first thing. Um, I think second, I think that 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 pretty much sums up how Putin got into power. He was someone who had already been in. Um, he was in a prime minister role first. So he was kind of acquainted with the role before uh, Yeltsin decided to um, resign, to resign. So um, yeah, Putin was already in the, the public eye and very soon into Putin's, or at least at the start of Putin's um, presidency, we had the, first, uh, the second Chechen war ev- even. So it was at 
at that point, the Putin was then able to consolidate his power through victories, and I'm putting my fingers up in a quote mark here, victories, um, in the Second Chechen War. I think he really consolidated his power there. Um, have I, I, yeah, I guess that's my answer for that part of it. Um, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, Morgan, do you have anything to add or should we just continue? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes to show, I mean, the fortuitousness or the the chaos of history, right? It's, it's. I mean, if another general had been put in place, I don't think we would be here. Um, I'm not sure if that's your sense as well, if there's some sort of path dependency there or uh, if it really is kind of a man run. I, I guess in the way I see it is in certain systems, you know, history can really be dictated by individual people because that's the way the institutions are set up. They're really dependent on one person's ability to construct a narrative and to, you know, pull a country in a particular way where that's harder to do in other systems. Um, yeah, and I'd be curious to know about this, you know, myth-making and, and the way that Putin has developed um, kind of Russia around him, or at least the institutions. One of the things that I am curious about is, is how many kind of constraints, how that has developed over time. Um, I would imagine, and I, again, I'm not, I don't know the, the history well at all, but I would imagine in the beginning there were people around Putin who maybe weren't as powerful, but at least could say, you know, could voice their opinions about specific things. And I would be curious to know if you think that's still the case. Um, I think when we think of other contexts, after rulers have been in power for a long time, they end up in places often where they just kind of have yes men around them, where they see the world in the way they want to see the world, and they end up associating themselves with other people who see the world the same way, or at least willing to say that they see the world the same way. And I'd be curious to know if you think that is something that's going on in Russia, or if there are people around Putin who can speak up and voice alternative opinions. Maybe he doesn't listen to them, but are they there in the first place is something I'd be curious to know. I think, um, so if you've managed to catch the Security Council meeting at the start of the week, I think one thing we found here is that Putin is isolated. Um, he, you know, he was at this Security Council meeting, it was almost like it was an audience with Putin rather than this Security Council meeting himself. He was sat away isolated and his men were sat in a kind of semicircle around him. They were together, he was alone. Um, I think that it's, yeah, I mean, when someone's been in, in charge for a long time, that there's inevitably going to be change around him. So how can, he, there are no men of this sense they will have known him lots of them are kgb veterans like himself he has amassed himself with a siloviki so siloviki is ex-army or security um people who are um who now have political positions so siloviki um and and so putin knows these people putin's comfortable with these people and that's why they are part of his inner circle but it's also how much how can we how far can we really consider them his inner circle um you know Sergei Lavrov for example who is the foreign minister um is within this inner circle from how we would see it but he's still very much treated like um a staff member he's I think this is something that was recently brought up by Mark Gioletti um who works a lot on um Russian uh Ukraine um Eurasian I would even say um foreign affairs um and, and domestic politics, just to kind of anything to do with Russia. Um, but he talks about, um, you know, how, how Lavrov, is, for example, someone who would, you would really expect to kind of be in Putin's year is actually still at arm's length away. Um, you also have people like Sergei Narushkin. Um, I don't know if he did catch the, the national, the um, Security Council meeting, but actually he was, uh, it was a very embarrassing kind of, um, Putin kept talking over him as he was giving his opinions, advice around this. And it was very much a, I don't know if it was a, a power move on Putin to show that I can talk over you. Um, but then you have uh, some people who do really have Putin's ear. You've got Sergei Shogu, for example, who is the um, defense minister um, in, in Russia at the moment. Um, he's someone who is very much publicly as i mean you see lavrov we know lavrov we he's someone um that he is often seen on television talking about these affairs being sent instead of putin to talk to other diplomats but sergey shogu is often shown 
with Putin. Okay, he sits with Putin. He does really have a big seat at the table. But Sergei Shogu is also the defense minister. Okay, uh, he holds very hawkish views because of the fact that he is the defense minister. There's also other people like Nikolai Patrushev, Alexander uh, Botnikov. Um, you know, Patrush Patrushev is the national security advisor. Um, a, a lot of these are also KGB veterans. So like Putin, they have been brought up in a security surrounding their people who have um, strong world views around the military and around the role that military should have in society. I think that um, Putin is isolating himself. I think that the COVID pandemic has even made that even more so. I don't know if you've seen the um, uh, recent memes about Putin sitting at a table and it's a really long table and you've got people at the other side. Um, he is really keeping his distance from from some of these people who form his inner circle as we know it. Um, but he still does have people he can lean on. It's just the type of people he does lean on um, are also have the same background as him, have been brought up in a military security situation, are people who are now in charge of military security um, sections of society, uh, which I think has has very much, I wouldn't say push Putin. I feel like Putin has a very clear idea about what he wants and what he wants to do. I just feel like yeah. the people around him are people who support that more likely than not. Or yeah. to not support it. <laughs> right. Um, I have uh, one other kind of like context question about the uh, Russian democracy and then I know um, Morgan has a question about just like the Russian public at large and their view of Ukraine but um, I'm wondering Allison if you can give us a sense of you know a, a new uh, Russian nation Yeltsin is the president a new democracy was there a sense in the 90s that this new democracy would be like messy, but it would be free and there would be fair elections. And then obviously that uh, shifted and that sense fell by the wayside in the 21st century or from the outset, was there suspicion and w was there not even a motivation really for Yeltsin to have like a free and fair democracy? What do you think? What do I think? It's so difficult, the 1990s, um, just to kind of pull it apart, because as, as I've mentioned earlier, it really was chaotic. I think one of the biggest things is that... Wild even. Wild things, yes, seen as we're talking about the wild 90s. One of the wild things we can say about it is that, um, especially around the economic policies of the 1990s, especially at the start when they started to bring in price liberalisation, Yeltsin and his advisors told the public that, okay, it's not going to start off well, there's going to be issues because we've never done this before, but it will be worth it. And people truly, at the start anyway, put their faith in the fact that they would have to go through something bad. You know, they'd have to, um, they'd have to go through something bad in order for it to improve. And I think that was the acceptance of that you know, people didn't have to like it, but they accepted it, um, was because there had been that open honesty, that declaration that, okay, we're going to try this, or we need to do this in order to take us away from the communist economic system. It's going to be a rough, rocky couple of years, but we'll get through it. However, that changed when it didn't get better. Um, I think in terms of Yeltsin's own determination, to bring about democracy. I mean, Yeltsin's speech when he left office was very much like apologetic. It was very much like I had I had a, a desire to bring democracy to you and it hasn't worked out. And it's we're we're leaving this time at my presidency not having achieved what I really wanted to achieve. I think he was very apologetic. He was also someone, especially um, after, you know, a few years into Putin's reign, someone who 
became critical of Putin, became critical of um, the policies he's bringing in, the author authoritarianism, um, for example. So, uh, I mean, from what I've read and from what I know about Yeltsin, I would like to say that his determination to bring about democracy was genuine. I do also believe, however, that when losing public support, especially during the Chechen war, the first Chechen war between 1994 and 1996, Yeltsin did bring in um, a number of laws that, um, like the media law, for example, um, and he did try and direct public perception or at least shape public perception around the Chechen war and around other factors. He, he himself almost isolated himself. He was someone who became less um, public. So someone you could see less in the public. Um, during that time, um, and he did adopt authoritarian measures like that media law in order to um, help his position. So I would like to say that he had a genuine desire. And, you know, the 90s started off in a anything can happen sort of attitude and sense. Um, I, and it really could have. But what we see is actually um, Yeltsin's policies kind of reverted back to a lot of what we already could see in the Soviet, in Soviet times. Yeah, and then it sounds like it set the groundwork for Putin to just take it into an autocracy. And then, uh, obviously, I'm sure listeners have some awareness of, you know, Putin jails or poisons his uh, opponents. And it's um, kind of gone full autocrat at this point. But yeah, Morgan, do you have a question about the, the Russian public? Yeah, so we're talking about the media law and kind of perceptions. And I know that Russia has, um, in recent years, tried to copy China's Great Firewall. And they've, you know, tried to invest in censorship efforts for the public. But I'm, I have a very little or limited sense of how effective this has been in the mean term. And so I'd be curious to know not only, you know, what was the existing perception, how effective has this national myth-making myth been for the greater public in terms of Ukraine specifically, but also how effectively do you think they can control the media narrative now? I mean, this isn't a war that's taking place in the 1990s or even the early thousands. There are people, you know, TikToking live scenes, people's voices from all over the world are being heard and opposition to um, this invasion is, I think, pretty widespread, but that might not be the case, um, you know, outside of Moscow. And I'm not entirely sure what is reaching people and what the sentiments are. And I'd, so I'd be great to hear if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, um, so as we are speaking, like today in general, there have been reports that um, Russia is trying to cut off Russian society from Facebook and Twitter. Um, so I definitely think there is an, a def there's definitely an effort um, in, to try and limit uh, where people get their information from within the country. Um, whether they have been successful since we started talking or whether they will be successful, I don't know. Um, Russia, um, Putin, I mean, being successful in cutting off that communication, I don't know. I also think that um, there are ways that people can get information. There are ways in which people can share things. So I don't think it's as easy as going, I'm going to cut off Facebook and that's going to cut the whole of Russia off. I think there are independent journalists, um, for example, like Medusa, um, who are working hard to bring about, um, and Navaya Gazeta that are, are doing their best to report um, objectively on things that are taking place in, in Russia. So um, yes, technology makes things easier to, for people to access, but also it's harder because of that easier access to cut people off as well from that wider general public. Um, in terms of myth-making, I'm going to move on to that part of that question now, I guess. Um, I don't know. Okay, I don't know. No. Um, you know, using history um, or memory diplomacy as um, coined by Jade McGlynn, some name dropping, some experts here. Um, but to use the frame memory diplomacy, this is not new to Putin's Russia, okay? We definitely see it in um, the, the era of Brezhnev, um, who creates this myth of the great patriotic war, okay? He, is, he was president um, in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And um, he basically 
uh, reshaped what we or what the Russian knew, Russia knew about or the Soviet Union at this time even knew about the Great Patriotic War, which was the Soviet Union's direct clash with Nazi Germany from 1941 to 1945. Um, and what he did during that time is he created the Victory Day parades as we now know them. They didn't, however, they weren't on an annual basis, but he did create this um, hysteria and um, hysteria, no, not hysteria, that's not the word, celebration, okay, because it was about celebrating people's sacrifice, um, their generation, this generational debt that the, the young Russian, young Soviet people owe to the, to the people and veterans who sacrificed their lives for them. Okay, so I'm going to, celebration is definitely a better word for it. Um, and Brezhnev really created this myth of the Great Patriotic War. There were um, stories of battles where people had sacrificed themselves that might not have even happened. But the storyline, I mean, there were, of course, sacrifices that were made, but there were particular ones that became popular, for example, um, in, in everyday discussions in the Great Patriotic War that might not have even happened themselves. Um, but it's that whole banding together, finding stories to align and bring, uh, you know, unite society um, find a common storyline for people to follow. Um, now, what we see in the Russia-Ukraine situation now is a... I'm trying to think of the right words to explain this. Soviet leaders, like Brezhnev, created a myth or a, uh, you know, used history in a particular way to unite society, to bring about policy change. Yeltsin did that too. Yeltsin changed the Soviet victory to a Russian victory. He added Russian symbols. He created temporal lines, not between Russia in the 1990s and the Soviet Union, but even beyond that. We had, for example, the creation of monuments of Marshal Zhukov, who was a marshal in the Great Patriotic War, that mimicked and looked like other Russian heroes, like uh, Dmitry Donsky, for example, or Nikolai II. Okay, they had the same imagery, this man on a horse trampling on something, um, and it's usually a trampling on a symbol, or and it very much also um, it very much also mimicked the image of like Saint George, for example. And, um, you know, that happened in the Yeltsin period and Putin's taking that and he's run with it. He's run wild with it. And what we saw in Putin's speech on uh, 22nd, I think, or yeah, the 22nd of February, just after this, this um, Security Council meaning, uh, meeting was this strange, very strange reshaping of Russia's past with Ukraine. Uh, which was shaped as a betrayal. And then we see this strange turn where Putin talks about in the 1990s, how Ukraine were given resources, were given uh, aid in order to help you know, build themselves up after they just declared independence in 1991. And Putin is, um, he, he outlines this as a, a huge betrayal, this idea that Ukraine is trying to deny um, everything that unites us is what he says in his in his speech, and and there what he's talking about is this um, shared history, the Great Patriotic War, for example, their shared history, their shared communist history, um, the shared role of role of Lenin in society. So the, there are Lenin, lots of Lenin monuments have actually been removed um, in in Ukraine, and so he's talked not lots of them, not all of them, but lots of them, and this is what he's talking about. He's talking about this. Um, betrayal, this great betrayal, and this is how he's trying to divide Russian-Ukrainian society. I don't know how effective that's going to be, however, because people now, Russian people, are now fighting Ukrainian people, some of which are family, because of the mm. fact that the Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union was this huge empire where um, these different countries were able to cross into other you know, Ukrainians lived in Russia, Russians lived in Ukraine, for example. But there's also this, um, I'm trying to think what the phrase is now. We have, we have this crossing over this, um, you know, how are they going to fight people who could potentially be their family, right? Yeah. But so people who came together at one point in history 
in order to fight against a greater cause, fight against Nazi Germany. And then a lot of this fighting is actually taking place in hero cities. Hero cities like Kiev, for example, which is deemed a hero city because of some where some of the major battles of the Great Patriotic War actually took place. And so it's very, it's very much seen as a, I don't even know how to describe it, but Putin's using a very sacred history against. Yeah, well, one, one thing that I saw in Putin's speech that I thought was bizarre, but under the framework that you just outlined for us, Allison, makes a lot more sense in terms of like what narrative he's trying to push is he was calling Zelensky a neo-Nazi. And I guess, you know, playing into this idea, this historical myth-making of, you know, the great patriotic war, it was, it was us good communists against these Nazis. And, you know, now people of Ukraine turn against this rogue neo-Nazi regime and join, you know, your brothers of Russia, if I'm interpreting that, you know, correctly. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to talk about this in in the wild 90s sort of context, but the wildest thing here is that Zelensky is Jewish. Uh, Right, (laughs) yeah. Like, there's nothing even I can even say after that. That's wild. I think there's that that extension. Russia Russia defines its role in military operation as either defense, we're defending ourselves from surrounding neighbors, or as a mission. We, we have a mission, it's called um, Samabitnost, which is kind of like a version of American exceptionalism, but it's about Russia and the Slavic's path towards destiny, right? And, um, and Putin has actually, is been as someone who's raised this um, over the last couple of years in his speeches. But what, what he does here is he creates this like messianic role that um, Russia takes uh, through, through these missions and what he's doing here with the, you know, wanting to denazify Ukraine, for example, he's drawing other temporal lines between the great patriotic war, the, this great fight against Nazi Germany to what's happening now. And it's the wildest thing again about that is that a lot of those people who Russia are now fighting against in the war at one point fought along you know, their grandfathers, for example, against Nazi Germany. Um, I, I couldn't even tell you. I, there are definitely people who could talk about this a lot better. Um, it's, it is wild, it is. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, um, I think, you know, we'll get into kind of the day-to-day of what's going on on the ground in, in Kiev and other parts of Ukraine just a moment, but Morgan, do you uh, have anything to add before we move on to kind of the current events? No, I mean, I think it's a, it's a fascinating background on the, the current circumstances and to give a sense of what people, you know, are actually thinking about um, this in context of the kind of wider Russian history and the wider historical lens with which Putin has tried to frame this in. Um, I know I've seen, um, you know, people, I've probably read 20 articles about people trying to be, you know, arm, armchair psychologists, I guess, armchair psychologists trying to figure out why Putin is uh, is doing what he he is. And um, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I don't think I've heard this in the context of, of the 90s. And I think that brings this into a new light. But yeah, I mean, we can we can skip forward and skip into today. Um, unfortunately, I've, I've actually had the chance to be I've, I've been to Kiev and Lvov a couple of different times and it's I mean the beautiful cities and extremely nice people and it's uh, it's crazy I can't even really think about like the being places where there's now an active war like that and in, in Europe is uh it's very hard to put in context yeah I'd like to just add though before we move on to yeah. these kind of events well because it's definitely going to be linked to it anyway I don't think anyone truly knows what's going on uh inside Putin's head and I think actually it'd be deplorable for us to try and understand because is that then us trying to understand and justify what he's doing whereas what we can do is take what he is saying at face value and sit and you know I think at the moment we're too early to really get in the discussion of whether it's legitimate or not because again it's it's potentially apologizing for what he's doing which we should not do I don't know if I'm meant to be objective. I'm definitely not being objective. But in my mind, he's, it's not what he, you know, it's 
we shouldn't apologize for him. What we can do with what he is saying is define how he is trying to raise or mobilize society around these ideas too. And I think one of the biggest conversations that I've tried to not get myself involved in as much, but I've ended up doing it anyway, is this idea that Putin is irrational. Um, you know, we think, I think, don't know, um, but we think, I think that Putin's actions are irrational, are crazy, are abhorrent, but Putin doesn't. Putin has completely calculated what he is doing. And, you know, he framed some of his speech the other day about how this was almost like a last option, that he's being forced to do this in order to help the Russian people in Crimea in Donetsk and Lugansk who are facing genocide. But then we have tanks rolling in from Belarus. We've got explosions in Kiev. It doesn't quite explain. So there's definitely things that Putin isn't saying, but we don't know what he isn't saying until he actually does it. What we can do is talk about what he is saying. Um, and I just, I think the biggest thing here is that this is totally calculated, which is dark. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. I think we can use the term evil when it comes to Putin. Um, so I'm perfectly kind of comfortable using, uh, that language, um, and not like trying to equivocate in any way for whatever bizarre kind of motivations you know, a despot has. I mean, I think it's less about equivocation and, and rationalizing why and more about trying, I think for most people, at least trying to figure out what is driving it so that we can anticipate what comes next, right? If, if you understand the framework within which this is rational, then we might have a better idea of, you know, plans to come and how you might combat it. And I don't think uh, people without expertise coming in and trying to do those things is helpful at all. It actually makes it more complicated. So that's why we're, we're happy to have somebody on who can actually speak to some of the history and put this in a better context. Um, but yeah, absolutely agree. I also think this also raises questions, not just about what's going to come next, but how we end it. Mm -hmm. And I, this is actually the more depressing part of this, because again, I'm keeping up to date with people um, who are specialists on this. Um, it was George Lofman. Um, he raised these very um, important issues. He's someone coming from it from a security perspective. So he was using, uh, you know, phrases like ontological insecurity and, and constructivist ways of trying to, trying to approach it. Um, because this isn't something that I think can really be solved by military action or sanctions. I'd like to think they work, okay? I'm sitting on the positive side of sanctions working. However, Putin is completely convinced he, his ideas and points around, you know, this idea that um, the, the West has let him down, Ukraine's betrayed him. How, how do you approach that? How do you, it's almost like there's no sort of currency that we can pay in order to end it. I don't know. It's uh, very dark. Yeah, I mean, he, and he's also had years, decades to prepare for sanctions. Sanctions aren't exactly a novel form of, of non-warfare or a retribution. I, I think that he's been, you know, storing, um, you know, finances and coffers to account for a lot of these exact um, options that we've taken. It doesn't mean we shouldn't undertake them and they won't still have an effect, but it's not the same as if we were springing something for the first time. Um, sanctions, they've had sanctions, um, maybe not these exact sanctions, but after and the war in Crimea, there were sanctions as well. So it's not like this is uh, unexpected. Yeah, and the sad thing to me um, is that, I mean, FIFA is obviously one of the most corrupt organizations around, so it's not like a surprise they gave them the World Cup, but they just keep hosting Olympics and World Cups and kind of, in some ways, internationally legitimizing Putin's regime. And that's been difficult too. As you're saying, Morgan, like laying the groundwork for for years and years before actually kind of pulling the trigger on this. Um, but anyhow, yeah. So 
as far as you what Ukraine's dealing with um, in this moment, um, and as a means of kind of uh, just giving some context for the situation, you know, at one p.m. Pacific time, uh, nine p.m. UK time, Saturday, February twenty-sixth. Um, this this comes from the Guardian. So. Uh, Germany has reversed its uh, normal policy of not giving weaponry into conflict zones and has given uh, Ukraine 1,000 anti-tank weapons and 500 missiles, um, which is good. Um, there's 2,000 Russian anti-war protesters that have been detained, so I'm sure we've seen videos of the um, protests in Moscow, and it's good to see there's kind of obviously some support in the public um, in Russia widespread, I imagine. Um, there's all this kind of conversation about um, sanctions, and I, I don't know if any of us know exactly how severe like these sanctions are going to be, but I don't know, Morgan, if you have any um, thoughts on this or Allison, but essentially right now, at this moment in time, there's SWIFT, this main international payments network, and France and Italy and Greece have supported removing Russia from that as a penalty. Um, Germany didn't support it, and now it's kind of on the fence, indicating that it might support it, and that would be huge. It sounds like as far as a devastating uh, sanction. A lot of the Russian oligarchs, uh, their assets have been frozen. Um, Roman Abramovich uh, of Chelsea Football Club um, has, I guess, relinquished control. So as far as, uh, Morgan, I say you unmuted. I don't know if you wanted to say anything about SWIFT or... Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I also would know more, but that's the one that, um, not even in this context, but this this is like the big lever that's actually never really been pulled in these contexts and is seen as sort of next level sanctions um, that has you know never really been triggered in any sort of situation like this. It's essentially a banking feature that allows, is controlled by banks, managed by banks, that allows them to essentially ostracize banks from a certain country or jurisdiction from uh, transporting money between other forms of banks. And so what it would essentially do is cut off, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of transactions that kind of go through routinely from Russian banks to other banks, things like commodities would be cut off. It would have, I, I think most people are suspecting it would actually have a pretty profound immediate impact. Um, and you could recover, Russia has their own system that they can operate on outside of SWIFT, but it's much smaller, connects to a much uh, fewer number of banks. And so I think that is, something that President Zelensky of, of Ukraine has pushed for specifically. Um, and so we'll be curious to see if you can get enough uh, impetus behind it for the SWIFT sanctions, because I do think that would be something above and beyond the sanctions that we've seen so far. Yeah, yeah I think that, um, I mean, I couldn't say as much about the SWIFT um, aspect, but I will say the the current sanctions is the biggest against Russia that have, um, uh, have ever been put in place. And I think what SWIFT would do is further isolate um, Russia from the international stage. I mean, at the moment, Russia won't have access to American dollars, for example, not through, you know, it depends on who they cooperate with in the end with, if they cooperate with anyone. Um, you know, I think there was a, a UN Security Council voting last night where three abstained uh, including uh, China. <laughs> that was the big one. I was trying to remember who the three were. I, I think like, it was the UAE was one of them and India as well, right? If I yeah, remember it correctly. Yeah. yeah, earlier this week, I saw that the UAE wanted closer cooperation with Moscow. So I was really then surprised in a nice way <laughs> to see that they'd abstain from being part of this discussion. And the only country then to veto it was Russia. Um, that no other country vetoed. It was it was um, China, UAE, and one other country that um, that abstained instead as part of the vote. Um, but I do think this is you know unless Russia has cooperation from another country, which can provide the the monetary means that Russia might need to overcome what will be felt by these sanctions. Uh, I don't see. I, I don't know. I this is isolation for Russia, I think. And how far the sanctions actually affect Russia? In the past, sanctions, Russia have been able to overcome these sanctions and gain a, a better level of self-sufficiency. But we're seeing 
we've we've not seen this level of sanctions before. I feel like time will tell. This is one of those. It, a lot of this, a lot of the Russian-Ukraine crisis, unfortunately, is time will tell. Absolutely. And yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Eddie. Oh no. Well, I was just going to say, and there's been some. I think maybe again, I'm not an expert uh, in this area, but unexpected uh, good surprises in the last couple of days, as far as. Um, I read reporting that uh, Russia asked for troops from Kazakhstan and Kazakhstan, at least at this point, has said no. Um, That Turkey has blocked uh, Russian Navy ships in the Black Sea from advancing. Um, So these kind of things that uh, hopefully there will be outside of just the EU um, continue to be some support from. But Morgan, what are you going to say? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too much into speculation because I think this is even you know beyond anyone here's purview. But I, I do think the China question that you brought up is, is is the one that down the line is is most fascinating, or at least the most impactful potentially. Um, and I'm curious to hear if you know what the expected, maybe not end game, but the next step is. Is it some sort of new Cold War where Russia is pushed off into retention on self-sufficient, you know, reserves and own financial system, and they can kind of rebuild up some sort of, you know, Eastern Bloc where you have a lot of these things on the inside, or do they try to reintegrate? And will China, you know, be cooperative in that and serve as a a big Russian ally? Or are they also keen to see this as, you know, an overstep, even from an ally's standpoint? Um, So the abstention versus the rejection, I think is interesting, but I don't think, I mean, nobody here probably knows, but I'd be curious to hear if you have any thoughts. Um, I first of all on the China question again because I'm very much about amplifying people's voices Nakasha Hurt uh, at King's College London is a specialist in Russia Chinese uh, relations so um, you know start use her as a starting point and go from there um, I what I know about China and where China can go from here is what obviously we've heard in the news like you've heard but also uh, you know in conversations where people will say well China doesn't get involved because China will sit back, wait for the world to implode, and then we're walking, you know, wait for everyone else to kind of uh, ruin each other, ruin themselves, ruin each other, and then we'll step in and be like, right, great, cool. Um, and but that's all I know. That's only going from um, from discussion. So I definitely, um, I definitely recommend uh, looking into the work by Natasha Kurt and um, other specialists around that region. As for where we go next. I don't really know how we got here, you know, uh, and I'm, you know, we say I'm a, a specialist, but I've never felt more of a non-specialist in something in my life. And I thought about that. I thought I felt like that every day during my PhD. So, I mean, it's, um, and, and I think that's why it's really important that we do broaden our sources, you know, who we're referring to. I can only talk to you really about historic myth-making um, and there are other people who, I mean, I, I'm giving you what I know about this current topic, but there are definitely other people out there who are providing um, better, more nuanced intel about what's happening around Russia, Ukraine at the moment. And there's also other people who, you know, I can tell you about historic myth-making, but we've got people like Rob Lee, for example, who are actually talking about um, the military strategy, what's actually happened and identifying tanks and planes and things uh, by looking at videos, trying to verify them at the same time. Um, so, so I think we all must remember as well that there's not just one specialist on that on this topic. There's there's loads. In terms of where we go next, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like uh, Russia's increasingly isolated, and I think you said it. It is very positive to see that countries that I probably would have expected to see some support for Putin has gone the other way. I'm pleasantly surprised by that. Um, I also like that. I know we talked a bit about sporting events. You know, I've recently been looking at sports as a form of social activism with my students. And, and one of the reasons that it's not considered a, a form of social activism is because sports is meant to be apolitical. It's meant to kind of say, okay, we don't think or talk about the politics. And we know looking at the past, uh, looking at um, many events, Olympic boycotts in the past, that it's not totally apolitical. But usually these events still take place even if there is a, you know, a rogue nation. 
um, and they're still invited at the most part. But what we see here is a total isolation of Putin um, and, and Russia. Uh, in terms of making his own currency or own market, it depends who wants to cooperate with them. Um, as for the actual stuff that's going on in Russia and Ukraine, the denazification, the demilitarization and neutrality of, of Ukraine as part of Putin's aims, how is that going to be brought about? Where does it end? Does it end with the occupation of, of Ukraine? Does it end not with the occupation of Ukraine, but with a puppet government? you know, pro-Moscow government, which I, I mean, Ukrainian people hate Putin, so I don't know how effective that's going to be. I'm edging towards the negative one, not because I want to, but because I, unless the war ends, I don't see that it will end in anything else but occupation. And again, I want to be wrong. So, you know, I hope I'm proved wrong. Yeah. Uh, obviously, everything on the news that we've been watching the last few days is very dark. And, um, you know, there's another refugee situation with people going to um, Poland and Hungary and other countries. But I will say that I've just been extremely inspired by the leadership of Zelensky and the mayor of Kiev, which I learned is Vitaly Klitschko, which... I like grew up and he was a prize fighter. Like I, I knew that name, you know, and he's joined like the military ranks and is defending his, his uh, city. And yeah, for Zelensky, who I, I don't know very much about, but I remember when he was elected and he was formerly like a comedian. Um, I didn't, I don't know. I was, I've been, surprised and hardened by just how courageous this guy is uh he rejected i think today or maybe it was yesterday um you know the u.s offered him uh an evacuation and he rejected that offer and said uh he said i need ammunition not a ride um, or something along those lines um so his leadership i think has been tremendously inspiring and then just the people um Oh yeah, the 13 border guards on, on Snake Island telling the Russian warship to go fuck yourself was just, it doesn't get more inspiring than that. Inspiring. Yeah, no, it is. Um, there's, there's two things I wanna say about that though. Um, I mean, there's actually, there's other bits that I can add to that too, maybe directing the question in another direction, but I'm gonna first of all start with what you said. Um, there is, yeah, Zelensky, you know, um, it's, it is the quote, it's, I need ammunition, not a ride. And um, I wonder if it's actually Zelensky's background that actually makes him more likely to do this than to be another politician that gets in a plane and goes off somewhere else. Um, I think that at the same time as we praise people for, you know, I think it was 18,000 machine guns that were handed out yesterday to everyday citizens in Ukraine. There's also great bravery in having to leave um, you know, um, in the sense of you're leaving your family, you're leaving your home, you know, for example, taking your kids with you to go somewhere else um, in order to try and take them away from, from the issues that, you know, the, the danger. I do think that we need to recognize also that there's bravery in doing that, leaving your home, for example, leaving something you know. Um, but yes, no, it's been, um, it's not just on the Ukrainian side, but on the Russian side too, there's been a lot of bravery. There's been Zelensky's action, you know, and that, that's worked really well for him. Okay. That has worked really well for him because what Putin's asking Ukrainian people to do and the Ukrainian military to do is turn on Zelensky. How can you turn on someone who is actually sitting with you, is on the streets with you, not in a suit, but in, you know, wearing the same outfits as you saying, you know, I am with you on this. Um, which is why I don't think Putin's call is going to be quite as effective um, on the Ukrainian population. But I also think that it's really worked. I was, I was listening, or not listening, I was reading a thread earlier, I love a bit of a Twitter thread, um, by Ian, Ian Garner earlier, which was talking about, and it, com it comes back to this historic myth-making. At the moment, Russia is not allowing any of its media to, talk, to frame what's happening in Russia and Ukraine as a war. It has to be discussed as a special military operation. 
And what Ian Garner was saying is that that actually impedes myth-making, like the historical myth-making processes that can be attached to this. Because in the past, the Great Patriotic War, for example, has benefited from people being able to create heroes out of people, being able to talk about people's sacrifice. But if it's not a war, if it's a special military operation, you can't make those same heroes. Whereas on the opposite side, what we see in, um, in Zelensky's Ukraine, we see those 13 border guards being, you know, um, stood on a, on a pedestal. They are people who are becoming part of this myth. You've also got the, um, the ghost of Kiev, which is the ghost of Kiev now, which is um, uh, one of the pilots that shot down a Russian uh, air, airplane yesterday. Um, so again, there's, there's already myth-making around this. And, you know, these are events that have happened, but um, amplifying these people's stories, and it's really helping with Ukrainian morale, whereas it's not working on Putin's side. Um, and I don't know if you wanted to say something then, but the, what I was then going to talk about is public opinion and Russian bravery, Russian people's bravery. Okay, I've got to make sure I get that one in there. Because yeah. no, it, that sounds great. It's illegal in Russia to protest. Okay, it's legal for mass demonstrations. Um, as you might have noticed, and the number will definitely be higher now, around 2000 people have been detained in Russia for protesting. Um, you can protest as one single person as long as you have a permit. But what we have seen over the last couple of days is a swarms of Russian people out on the streets protesting against uh, Russia's war with Ukraine. They're using the phrase niet voinye, which is like no to war. Uh, so niet voinye, which is no to war, there's signs. Um, the fact that it's a simple message and a simple sign has, has then been carried on. Everyone's carrying signs saying the same things. Um, and these, it's not just, everyday people on the streets it's also celebrities um so uh there's also footballers i can't actually remember their exact name there are footballers one of them is actually in one of the russian football teams and he's um put messages out there saying he doesn't support the war for example so i think it's it's really odd at the moment i mean state opinion polls are reporting that there is wide um so I think it was 73% of respondents for um, a Vitson opinion polls that, um, so it's 73% of 1,600 people who were polled that support Putin's decision to recognize the independence, independence of Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, however, there have been also questions about whether we should be believing some of these results at the moment. And instead, I saw that there was a petition earlier um, of the Yablika political party in Russia. So Yablika is a different um, political party. Um, and at that point, when I saw it, it was about one o'clock today, 60,000 people had already signed this petition. And lots of them as well were famous musicians, for example, um, musicians, poets, dancers, uh, writers, you know, it's not just uh, the everyday people, but actually celebrities are using their platforms to also spread these messages. It's huge. Um, yeah, just to think of, I don't know, the the Russian arts has always been a courageous act, like in Russia's history, you know. Um, so to think of Dostoy and uh, Dostoevsky and Chekhov and I don't know, all through Tarkovsky, you know, making these brilliant films under the Soviet Union and having to get through it. It's just been, it's always been a brave act to make art in Russia. So I'm glad those artists are stepping up. Um, well, yeah, I mean, as we bring this to a close, uh, Morgan, do you have any kind of parting thoughts on situation? Yeah, I think I uh, really just thank uh, Allison for joining us and for talking us through it. I think we, I mean, it goes without saying, but we obviously are supporting you know, everyone on the ground, everyone affected, and it's great to hear how we've got here and hopefully we're able to pay attention and find ways that we can help anywhere we can um yeah this has been great thank you so much for coming thank you i think i just want to leave on a parting message if i have the time to do so of uh, course i've already kind of said this you know uh, i'm still making sense of this situation myself as you said it's today the 26th of february a lot of what i've said uh, a lot of the predictions i've made are definitely probably going to change 
um, you know, hopefully for the better. Um, but just know that I could only know part of this history that we are seeing unfold in front of our eyes. You know, I can only talk about a part of it. So I just kind of promote the idea of really listening to experts in the region. Don't just listen to one expert, listen to a few, listen to those people's voices, uh, especially people from the region. I think the, that we uh, usually still look towards um, scholars, Western scholars like myself, actually, in saying that, um, whereas we really could learn more from people who are actually living and in the region. And also watch out for misinformation. There's a lot of it out there right now. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would give a, a talk. Our the, the Center for Informed Public at the University of Washington um, has a few experts working on Russian and Ukrainian uh, misinformation that's going on in the current war. Um, and so that's where I'd, I'd give a shout out to um, some of the people working there. Scott Radnitz in particular has done some great work on misinformation in that area. Um, Thomas Ridd's book on kind of Russian misinformation throughout the last uh, you know, 40, 50 years is also pretty interesting if people are interested in that area. So yes, remain vigilant on that front, certainly. Yeah, um, I don't, I can't speak for the social, the different social media uh, platforms, but for Twitter, there's a few people I started following, but Allison, do you have any recommendations of people to follow on Twitter to stay abreast of what's happening in Ukraine? so many people you could follow um but what i'll do is i'll give you a few and again it won't be an exhaustive list you can then look at who they're tweeting and following and go from mm -hmm. there but it's definitely um kimberly saint julian vernon uh she's a specialist in ukrainian uh history our understanding of ukraine um you've also got people who aren't also aren't, aren't uh like academics myself but also people who are into research and are actually living on the ground you've got terrell star uh, he's someone who's being very vocal about what is happening and taking place at the moment, taking just videos in the middle of the day, be you know, carrying out an everyday task and being like, okay, this is, this is, I'm trying to buy food and I'm in this huge queue. You know, he's someone who's kind of just bringing everyday life in Kiev to, to our eyes. You've also got people that I've already mentioned. You've got Jeff Horn, you've got Ian Garner, you've got Jade McGlynn, you've got Jenny Mathers, Natasha Kurt. Um, again, I've named uh, quite a few, uh, I, you know, I, I need to amplify other voices as well, don't I? Um, but the idea here is, is uh, to, to look, you know, everyone's retweeting and sharing um, the views of other people. I think there's a, a, an emphasis on that right now. So um, hopefully, if, if you enjoy the content of the people that I've recommended to you, um, you will also find that the people that they follow and retweet will also be able to widen your, your understanding of this, um, this event. So don't keep it, you know, don't just look at those people who have shared to you just then, broaden it. I think that's a great word. Um, well, Dr. Edwards, thanks again for joining us. Yes, thank you so much. Peace out. Thank you.